0: Places where we've had conferences and they come, you know, they ask you to come do seminars, things like that, where, you know, milk comes to the grocery store. Um, yeah. their, their meats, you know, they, they don't know where meat comes from. They have no idea, you know, what hunting's about, what it provides and, you know, what kind of necessity it is.
1: listening to the Muzzle Loaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. How's it going guys? It's Darren with Muzzleloaders.com and you are listening to the Muzzle Loaders Podcast, uh, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. Today we're going to be talking with Matt Bullins of Red Rising TV and uh, I'm really excited to have him on the show and have his uh, insight into the outdoor entertainment industry as well as uh, traditions muzzleloaders and just muzzleloader hunting in general. Uh, so Matt, thanks so much for joining us today and how are you doing?
0: Hey, thanks there for having me. I'm doing great today. Excited to be on the show. Looking forward to talking about muzzleloading and uh, traditions, which is near and dear to our hearts. So yeah, man, excited stoked to be here.
1: Awesome. Awesome. We were just talking pre-show about, uh, the fall and, uh, just that feeling you get. Do you have any exciting hunts coming up this fall?
0: I do. I've got several. I still got a a hunter or two that's up in the air. I don't have everything quite solidified yet, but definitely going to Texas. I try every year, uh, a buddy of mine that works with us, to uh, take a trip to Texas. The weather's always great. December, January, there's game-rich, you know, target-rich environment, and uh, you can burn a lot of ammo down there. So I I truly enjoy going to Texas. Um, Something about hunting at home here in the Blue Ridge Mountains, we're on the East Coast right here in the – Virginia, North Carolina border, right up on the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, you know, it's a gorgeous place. If you ever had the opportunity to visit Blue Ridge, I would certainly encourage you to do so. And, you know, there's just something about chasing those mountain bucks uh, that we grew up cutting our teeth doing. And, you know, that's obviously on my list. Uh, probably gonna try Maryland, uh, Sleeper State that we uh, have had so much success at. And then possibly gonna have a rut hunt in Illinois. I'm still working out the details on that. So couple of trips, um, two or three in the books, a couple of them trying to put them on the books.
1: Nice. Nice. That sounds exciting. I know you mentioned Maryland. Uh, Maryland is a state that I've been wanting to make it to uh, for Sika deer hunting, actually, because uh, I was look, looking into the, the, the out-of-state hunting license. is really cheap. It's not that expensive to fly over there, um, and Sika deer are just like really interesting. We don't really have anything like that over here on the west side. Um, so I think Maryland's state I'm definitely going to be checking out soon.
0: Yeah, that secret Deer hunt is, uh, you know, once in a lifetime hunt. I mean, I've been up there. I've never hunted them. I've seen a couple of them while hunting, but I know the guys that live there talk about what a, you know, very hard, tough hunt it is. They're so nocturnal, but it's so challenging. I think that's what drives those guys because they'd rather hunt those than they would whitetail any day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the challenge where – I think people just kind of have a natural tendency to like crave challenges and that's why usually you'll start you know you see people that go from rifle hunting to archery hunting to you know all that kind of stuff muzzleloader hunters often do the same thing um, elk hunting I think is kind of the the pinnacle for me of like just a really challenging hunt that you can do locally that uh, gets you out in the mountains out in the backcountry and uh, you know chasing some bulls during the rut is is pretty much an unparalleled experience in my opinion
0: yeah, I've never, never had the opportunity to go on an elk hunt. It's one of those bucket list hunts for me. And we're starting to have them migrate, you know, this way Virginia actually had a lottery this year with five draws, um, that I applied for all of us. None of us actually drew, but they're giving away five elk hunts. Uh, then obviously Kentucky has them now, but you know, going west, Colorado, west to try to do that is, is definitely on a bucket list. So something I truly want to do.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It's a, it's an amazing experience. What kind of elk? So I know that I think Tennessee has a pretty strong elk population and I know that they're moving up into that area. What kinds, what kind of elk do you have on the East coast?
0: Honestly, I wouldn't know exactly what to tell you on that answer. I know Virginia is starting to integrate them into their hunting sector. And like I said, this year they auctioned off. Well, it was a lottery drawing five elk permits and it was a big deal because first time virginia's ever done that you know you could put in for them in state or out and all of us did and you know i've seen some pictures of some of these bulls that are up in that area and they're they're gigantic i mean you know something like you'd see anywhere in the country and then they're migrating in from kentucky because that kentucky virginia west virginia border all shares there so it's starting to creep in. I expect to see more of it, but right now it's very, very limited elk yeah.
1: hunting in my area. Well, I, I mean, honestly, like over here, hunting pressure and predation are like the two biggest killers of elk, and they, that's why you see, I mean, there's some, there's definitely some big bulls out in, in Eastern Oregon here, but I see like, what's predation like in, in Virginia there?
0: I'm sorry, what was that
1: question? What's predation like the, like, what are, like, what kind of predators do you have out there? Uh, Coyotes
0: for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Any of those small games, small animals. But you know, black bears are not really. I mean, we have them, but they're not really a predator problem. But we we don't. I guess have the mountain lions. maybe things that they do in the western states like you guys have. So that that's not as big of an issue to us. Um, hunting pressure is a big issue. But you know, Virginia's really really tight restrictions and protection on what elk herd we have. And, Mm-hmm. even white tails and stuff. So predators, you know, they eat our turkey population up, but as far as deer and, you know, other big game animals, we don't, I don't see that that's a big issue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, that makes a lot of sense because you see a lot denser uh, populations over there. And I think a lot of that probably does have to do with predation. Um, just cause we have, I mean, we're getting to have, where we have wolves in Oregon. Now we have bears, cougars, yeah. all that kind of coyotes. There's coyotes everywhere. I can't believe how many coyotes I called in during bear season this year. They just came. I couldn't keep them away. It was crazy.
0: Yeah, coyotes are a big problem for us. Like I said, for turkeys and you know small animals, small game huge for that. But and, and we also don't have the public land that you guys have out west to hunt. We mm. just don't. We don't have that access. So we have public land, but nothing like they do in the west. So I don't. We don't have as much pressure on public land and you know there's more private land hunting small acreage tracks where we are than there are big tracks.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Because I i find that fascinating because I, I actually traveled over to the East Coast for the first time. I, you know, been pretty much west coast my whole life and how different everything is over there, the landscape, um, and all that kind of stuff. So and you grew up hunting in North Carolina, is that right?
0: That's correct. Northwest portion of North Carolina, right up on the Almost, you could say, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina border. So we're right up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, just up a little bit different elevation. We don't have quite the humidity that a lot of uh, the state of North Carolina has. And it's, it's, you know, very mountainous rugged and, you know, you're hunting a lot of uh, oak trees and fruit trees and things like that.
1: Awesome. What's your, what's your biggest like hunting passion growing up there and like hunting in that area?
0: always been whitetails I mean that's what I cut my teeth doing with my dad growing up is you know when I was able to walk that's all I could think about was hunting we didn't do much of any other type of hunting my dad was not a bow hunter but he was a huge outdoorsman and muzzleloader season rifle season you know back then it was you got one or two weeks of muzzleloader season and maybe two weeks of rifle season so you know deer season didn't last more than a month six weeks so you know it, it, I think that made it that much more special. It was such a limited amount of time and didn't really do any bow hunting. So that six weeks, the entire year revolved around that. So, yeah. you know, that, that was the biggest time. That was my biggest, best time of the year for me was mid November when it rolled around.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And in Oregon, uh, we have, so we have a, a program now where you can hunt under the age of 12. If you use like your dad's tag or a mentor, it's called the mentored youth hunting program. Um, but I know a lot of states, like I think Texas is one of them, where you can actually just hunt on your own tag at a much younger age than 12. I'm not sure exactly what the age is. So, like, how old were you when you started hunting, and what are, like, the laws around uh, North Carolina there?
0: Now, in Virginia, they have an apprenticeship program where you can actually take someone, it doesn't matter what age they are, if they've never had a hunting license before, you can get them a license to and they can hunt with a licensed hunter. And then North Carolina and Virginia both has a youth season early. Well, it's in late September. It's coming up where you can hunt two days, one day in North Carolina, two in Virginia with a rifle. And that guy gives youth and you know an advantage here during these early months to see if they can put an animal on the ground to get them involved. But I started hunting, shot my first deer at 10 when I was 10 years old with my dad. Uh, still the most memorable hunt of my life. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. And you know I've had the opportunity to travel all across the country, hunt some great states, some big animals, but nothing nothing will ever surpass that hunt. Like I said I was ten years old, and in North Carolina, you can legally bait, and my dad had taken out some leftover corn that we had from Halloween yes. and uh, dumped it out, and still on the spot, still have it it's still part of our family ground and you know, we, uh, it was rifle season. I had an open sight, Marlin thirty thirty. We walked up this hill and it was probably a hundred yards and you know, it felt like two miles at that age. and Cold, we sat down and it's just starting to break daylight. My dad could see deer at, at the at the bait pile. And I, I really couldn't tell what it was. I could just make out figures at that age. And I finally made caught out the glimpse of a deer and he said, that's, that's a nice buck. That's a really nice one. You, you need to try to shoot it. You know, with him helping me guide, we sitting next to a big pine tree, open size, at about 70 yards, I would say, 60 or 70. Mm-hmm. I shot uh, shot that deer, dropped in his tracks, and still one of the biggest deer I've ever killed to date, and I was 10. And, and, you know, it might as well have been a 180-inch deer at the time, still to this day, but th- I'll never forget that hunt. Still the number one hunt on my, you know, all-time list right there.
1: Oh, man, that's but, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think the firsts are always really special, you know, and be able to participate with somebody in that.
0: It, it always is. And, you know, like they say, kids remember moments. Children do more than video games and other things like that. And still rings true because I know with my own kids, I have two. My daughter, she started hunting. Now she's kind of out of it. I think she'll come back to it. with my son, and he's into it really heavily and, you know, still – right now we've been out you know several hunts over the years and you know out of the blue we'll be riding down the road or doing something and one of them say hey daddy you remember when we did x y and z or we had that deer come in or you know whatever it was and I honestly don't remember it until I sit and think about it and I'm like yeah I do but it didn't even cross my mind but those are the types of moments that we really that I appreciate that we do at Red Rising because that's what it's about trying to get this next generation involved in any type of hunting. And when, when I know that I've done my job correctly is when they can remember moments like that, that even I can't, mm-hmm. because you know, kids brain and kids mind work so much different than an adult. But, I, and I know 20 or 20 years from now, they're going to remember that just like I did my first hunting. So that, that's special.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's one thing I really appreciate about what you guys do at red rising is you're really passionate about um, bringing the next generation along and we talk about that a lot here on the podcast specifically with regard to muzzleloading but also hunting because both of those things are we're really passionate about here um, and unless you bring younger people alongside in a passion you know there's no chance of it surviving and i think that hunting is something that's that's good for people i think i don't think everybody necessarily should hunt but i think a lot more people than are hunting should hunt and i think that it would really benefit Uh, our nation just in society, you know, to have people understand kind of where their food comes from, understand wildlife on a more fundamental level.
0: Yeah, you can learn a lot just going out, you know, before daybreak and watching the woods come alive or before dark and, you know, see animals you may have never seen and watching them interact with each other and, you know, nature doing its thing. And like you said, people need to be able to, to hunt, to live, to gather, to do things that they may not necessarily even know. I mean, I, I have literally been in schools and, you know, places where we've had conferences and they come, you know, they ask you to come do seminars, things like that where, you know, milk comes to the grocery store. Um, yeah. their, their meats, you know, they, they don't know where meat comes from. They have no idea, you know, what hunting's about, what it provides and, you know, what kind of necessity it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there's just, there's something fundamental people need to understand about that and, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to get that nowadays because everything is available just at the, at the press of a button, you know? I mean, you can do grocery pickup and I'm guilty of doing grocery pickup, or I guess I should say my wife is guilty of doing that. Cause I don't, I'm not very bad about getting the groceries. Um, but it's just so, it's so much nicer to, to do that, you know, and convenience has kind of, has kind of killed off a lot of the necessity that people have found to, you know, get out and get after it. Um, so You've mentioned rifle hunting earlier. Uh, when did you first start muzzleloader hunting? Because I know you guys at Red Rising uh, are teamed up with Traditions and use a lot of their muzzleloaders on your show.
0: You know, like I said, rifle hunt's where I started. I cut my teeth because, you know, and I'm 41, just turned 41. So when I started hunting, you know, muzzleloaders, a lot of them was flintlock type stuff. So the safety precautions, issues and stuff, you know, my dad and most parents didn't trust. 13, 14 year old kids with a muzzleloader at the time. Just, you know, you just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I still to this day probably wouldn't myself now, but, uh, with the technology, but you know, rifle hunting was huge, but I probably started muzzleloader hunting. I think I was around 15. I want to say somewhere in that area, 15, 16, never forget it. The first muzzleloader I ever had was the brand new first inline muzzleloader. It was the Wolverine from mm-hmm. And um, I, I still have that muzzleloader, my dad and I both. He bought one, and then he bought me one, I think, for my birthday before season. And I um, don't know if you're familiar with those, but, you oh, know, yeah. it, it was the greatest thing, greatest thing ever at the time. And, you know, just being able to say that I was going to get to go muzzleloader hunting and, you know, you had your loose powder, your small caps, and, you know, take the breech out and clean everything. And it was a learning experience, to say the least. I mean, it was so much easier at the time to just, you know, bolt a gun, take it out and, and go hunt. Mm -hmm. And, but I was probably around 16 when I first actually started muzzleloader hunting. And still to this day, it's my favorite. It's been my passion. You can ask any of the other guys or anybody that knows me, uh, muzzleloader comes first. I love archery. I love rifle season, but there's something about muzzleloader because that was always the time of year for me. Our muzzleloader season always come in like the first Saturday in November in north carolina so it was peak of the rut the leaves had changed the air was crisp and you know you had a gun in your hand and feel to this day i get chills when, when that season rolls around i'm like muzzleloader season's upon us and it, it, mm-hmm. it's by far my favorite
1: yeah I, I absolutely love muzzleloader hunting as well i think that um i've done archery i've done rifle i've done muzzleloader i've kind of settled on muzzleloader as being my favorite. Um, and I'm just, I just love hunting in general. I love getting out in the woods for me, be just being out in the woods is 90% of the fun. Like when I was out this past weekend, I didn't even have a tag. I was just calling elk for a friend and just being out and hiking around and, you know, experiencing the wildlife is 90% of it. Um, but I think that muzzleloader hunting is, it's kind of like that happy medium for me where it's, it's kind of like, rifle season and that you have a little bit longer range than archery um but it's also a little bit more like archery where you can oftentimes at least in Oregon you can hunt during the rut in a lot of seasons you can still experience rattling bucks in um all that kind of those fun experiences and so uh, I really enjoy muzzleloader hunting and it's just so much more technical too you know the load development everything about it is just so enjoyable
0: it is I mean, you know and and the technology that muzzle loading has today compared to the last you know twenty years, where we come from is you know it's basically almost like rifle hunting. I mean it, the technologys so far surpassed that you know the safety concerns that we used to have you can take out the cautionary concerns are out the window. Mm-hmm. I mean you know, like traditions, the new knife that we so dearly love, I mean you literally have. Your powder in a plastic sleeve that is impervious to water, put it in, put the calf in it, load the bullet down the barrel, and you're ready to hunt. You can take it out, take it with you just like you take a bullet in and out of a gun basically, and you know, you're legal in most states to hunt. It, it's, there's no better time than now to get people involved in muzzleloader hunting. Because mm-hmm. if people ask me why should I give muzzleloader hunting a try, I'm like why not? I mean if you're a rifle hunter, a bow hunter, whatever, now is the time there the technology is here it's the easiest and simplest it's ever been cleaning the loader now is you know just like cleaning the rifle and the safety concerns are gone it's just the perfect time for everybody to give a muzzleloader a try
1: i i completely agree and and you mentioned the safety concerns i think traditions is kind of on the on the bleeding edge of a lot of those safety features with their muzzleloaders um with nitro fire being you know chief among them but also like the vortex striker fire has multiple safety features and um you know i would i would feel completely comfortable putting any of their muzzleloaders in the hands of you know pretty much anyone i mean they're just so they're so well designed and user-friendly and safe
0: sure any common sense i mean if you can work a rifle you can work a muzzleloader today i mean it's you know three steps and you're ready to go and you know, the, all, the old cleaning features of having to take debris, you know, everything out and clean it and put it back together. Those days are gone as well. I mean, you know, barely barely any smoke, any residue whatsoever in the barrel, debris, so it's, you know, and the distance. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. my tradition's is Fire. You know, I, I'm hitting bullet holes at 200 yards with it. Oh, so, yeah. you know, that's, for us, what we do on video, we don't do anything further than that anyway. So, it, it's basically like hunting with rock.
1: Totally. Uh, so have you, have you, because on traditions does make an, one thing I really appreciate about traditions is the fact that they do still produce and hold on to the traditional stuff as well. And I actually plan to hunt with, uh, traditions, uh, flintlock during my deer season mm-hmm. this fall. Uh, have you been an inline guy through and through your whole life or have you ever tried out any of the side locks?
0: mostly in line. My like I said, my dad had a flint lock at the time and uh I used to go with him when he would have it, but you know, watching the open sites and trying to maneuver it and you know, worrying if it's gonna go off and things of that nature. Now I haven't used one in twenty years, but mm-hmm. it's mostly all been in line for me. But you know, now that you mention that it's almost like the guys that are, went from compound to recurve for that challenge. It it would be a it would be a great challenge, especially in some of these states you know, I know there's a few still where during that muzzleloader period or a certain muzzleloader period, you can't use a scoped rifle or gun
1: mm-hmm.
0: to ask the open size. I think that would be a cool challenge
1: for sure. Oh, totally. Actually, Oregon is one of those states, you know, and so last year, the buck I killed, I killed with an open sight inline muzzleloader. Um, and then kind of like you're talking about that move from compound to recurve. I just kind of something's calling my name about it you know it's like ah, you know i could could i do it with this you know
0: <laughs> yeah that, that's 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 the right there that challenge and you know if you're in a perfect state apparently to do that because i mean what better way since you already can't use a scoped gun i mean this is perfect
1: mm-hmm. exactly yeah and i think that traditions does a really good job of producing you know high quality affordable traditional muzzleloaders that uh are accurate and i you know i use them at uh at rendezvous as well and Rendezvous are kind of one of those things we have out here, and I know there's a lot of them back east. And muzzleloader culture is is really strong back east as well. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are in the uh, in NSSA in and NMLRA associations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, so when so you had that night Wolverine when as your first muzzleloader, um, what was like kind of the evolution of muzzleloaders that you started using throughout your life? Well, I
0: went from the Wolverine and then. Honestly I, I've been you know, I used it for a long time and not sure what I had right after that, but I mean, I've been with traditions for the last fifteen years. I mean, so mm-hmm. everything that I've had in my hands has been a traditional muzzle loader and you know, all of us, all four of us. So, you know, it it's been the evolution of traditions from where they started to where they are is where we've been. From their very first, you know, original um Inception to now, to the Vapor Twist Nitro Fire, that, that's where we've been. It's been basically all in line, all traditions for me.
1: Okay. Yeah, 15 years ago, that was before I started using muzzleloaders. What was Traditions working with back in those days?
0: Uh, I do remember the first names. I can't remember. It was the Striker Fire, what was the one before the Striker Fire? Well, did they have the Pursuit uh, back then? They had a Pursuit, but they had another one can't remember off the top of my head what the name of it was. I still have a couple of them, but I obviously don't don't use them now because, you know, once I put that – once I had that nitro fire in my hand, there's been no switch at all for nothing. I mean, I I literally take it sometimes during rifle season with me just because, you know, I'm shooting 100 yards on most of my spots where I hunt, so Mm -hmm. it's just as deadly as anything else.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no sense in – no sense in, like – you know, using anything else. I mean, it, it works so well, you know, there's just nothing really sure. bad to say about it. It's the, the nice thing that I've, you know, a lot of the people we have called through the biggest feature. They're so excited about with the nitro fire is the water resistant fire sticks. And, yeah. um, you know, just being able to not have to worry about getting your powder wet, you know?
0: Yeah. Those, they're, they're amazing. I mean, you know, you can put two or three in your bag, a couple of 209 primers that's you know, impervious to water. You can, slide it in and out after each hunt, you know, don't have to worry about the gun going off. I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to worry about the powder getting wet. Like you said, putting something over the end of the barrel or worry about moisture. I mean, you literally do not have to worry about any of that anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. What, uh, what bullet do you usually use? Um, as I know traditions has like a full lineup now.
0: Well, we kind of mix. Some of us use the carnivore. Some of us use the bleed bullet. I shoot the carnivore. Um, for some reason, they just—I don't know—I've had really good consistency with them. Like I said, I've touched bullet holes 200 yards with mine, so mm. those have been the ones that I that I typically stick with. I shoot the 100 grain fire firestick. Um, Eric actually, most of us use the 100. Eric actually shoots the 120s. Uh, he likes a little bit more powder in his, and uh, he shoots the uh, carnivore as well. So those, the bleeding carnivore, we've been using both mixed.
1: Okay awesome and i know that uh traditions they just came up with a uh another bullet um i can't remember the name of it uh, right off the top of my head it's, it's a another smackdown series do you know do you can you remember the name of it um
0: uh not right off the top of my head oh no. man Carnivore. yeah i'm drawing a blank on that one too right the carnivore and the bleed of smackdown was you know those are the
1: ones that we've been using well, if you guys are watching on YouTube, I'll put the name and and everything up of the of the bullet on sure. the video portion of it. <laughs> but I feel horrible; I can't remember the name. You may, you name may be it. ahead of us.
0: Uh, you may be ahead of me on that. I, I I'm <laughs> not in, I'm not even up on that one
1: yet. Yeah, it's it's pretty sweet. I haven't had a chance to take any out. The uh, Tradition sent us some samples, so I'm excited to take them out to the range and see see what they do. Um, but they they look pretty awesome. Uh, I'm pretty excited to to try them out. But. Um, yeah, we've, I mean, I've tested with the bleeds, the XRs, the, the, uh, carnivores and had good results with pretty much all those bullets. I think that they're all really good, solid, uh, bullets. So, yeah. And cool. so kind of switching gears here a little bit, I do want to talk about, uh, your time as a videographer, because before red rising, you've been in the outdoor entertainment industry for, like you said, about 15 plus years now. Um, so what has that looked like and, uh, how has that experience kind of helped you through your hunting career?
0: You know, that's, uh, that's the number one question we get all four of us all the time is, man, how did you get started doing this? And, you know, how do I do that? And, you know, what steps do you take? And, you know, everybody's path is different. And, you know, now today, this generation is so different with social media influencers and ambassadors and, you know, video technology and things that was 15, 20 years ago. But, um, My story is uh, not a complicated one. It was basically being in the right spot at the right time and, you know, kind of just falling into the right people. But um, I was an intern at work. Eric and Chris are still probation and parole officers with the state of Virginia. Uh, I was interning. I was working on my master's degree at college at the time.
1: Mm.
0: And they had started filming for Jury Outdoors. They were on the original Dream Season cast. They were full-time cast members, and I literally started filming them like as videographer. knew nothing about cameras at the time, just kind of picked it up because uh, they filmed each other, so I would fill in when one couldn't. And uh, me and Jason and another guy started filming, our, you know, as well at the time, and he kind of fell into it. And so basically, they filmed for Drury for a couple of years. Jason and I filmed. And then they branched off and formulated Legends of the Fall TV show. Jason and I did Dreams Season. We fell into that after being on the staff for a little while with Drew. We did Dreams Season Working Man, and then uh, at the end of that, when that was over, we had formulated Whitetail Fix, mm-hmm. which is still a show today. This is Legends of the Fall is. And, uh, Jason stayed with Whitetail Fix for two years. I think I stayed for four. And then I they formulated Red Verizon, three of them, and then once everything was sufficient because I was the president of Whiteel and I ran all the day to day obligations. Uh once they were in a perfect you know, a great place for that, I transitioned so the the ultimate goal from the beginning was for the four of us to work together. Mm-hmm. And it took seven, eight, nine years to do that, but eventually it did. And um then we picked up with Red Verizon and haven't looked back since then. So, you know, basically it was knowing the right people, being in the right spot, made some great relationships across the years with a bunch of manufacturers. And, you know, um, stepped in last year, year and a half ago with Wildcom. They do all of our marketing, consulting, and advertising now, Greg Ritz and his company. So that's been a huge help as well. Uh, It took a lot of the heat and uh, over, you know, overall day-to-day obligations off myself. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of let them run the ship, steer it, and we sit back and, you know, video and do our thing, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, um, you know, it's not uncommon for people who have TV shows to also have, like, another full-time job outside of that. People think of, like, oh, you hunt on TV, that's your whole life, you know, and that's really not the case for a lot of people.
0: No, there's a very select few probably – 50 to 75 that I know that do that, you know, full time, what I consider that's their livelihood. I mean, even the ones, some of them, like you said, that have a livelihood do something on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I worked probation and parole for 15 years, um, had a great opportunity to take a job where I'm at now. I do mortgages for Atlantic Bay Mortgage Company, Atlantic Bay Mortgage Group, and um, my colleague and actual manager. He actually films and travels with me a lot. Um and then we uh Jason's a full time realtor. Then Chris and Eric are still probation and pro officers. And uh John Third, who's a pro staff in Maryland, he's an you know, offshore fisherman. He crabs and oysters and stuff and the that's what his day job is. And so yeah, we all have jobs, day jobs, it's not our livelihood, but it's I guess you'd say a second time second full time job.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really, I mean, really, yeah. I can't imagine trying to balance that schedule of, you know, going on all the hunts that you're going on. I have a hard enough time doing it with just like two or three hunts locally, you know, and you guys are traveling all over the country on different hunts, you know.
0: Well, you learn quick how to, you know, that that's probably your number one priority and obligation is trying to balance your work and hunting life, you know, and also family life schedule because, you know, my wife and kids know, hunting season, September to January, things transition and shift so to speak and you know, they don't always agree with it. I mean they're very supportive of it. But, you know, there there's you know, usually I have to get my wife a pretty detailed calendar schedule so that she makes sure that she's here and that, you know, if we have kids in sports and that sort of thing. Chris has kids and you know, his schedule's like mine. Jason and Eric don't quite have, you know, the obligations family life that we at Chris and I do. So Ours is a little more hectic than theirs, Um, so but it all works out. We, you know, all of us branch out. We kind of focus on trying to fill so many episodes each based on what we're doing that fall, where we're going to be hunting, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of have a plan, a game plan going into every year on what we're going to do if we have a great year, what we're going to do if we have a mediocre year, (laughs) and what we're going to do if we have an absolute horrendous year. So, (laughs) you know, we, we we try to figure it out ahead of time so we've got a plan.
1: Does that uh? Does that pressure to be successful like ever? Does that ever wear on you? Because because for me hunting, I go out having to ha- like trying to have an adventure, and if I put the burden of filling a tag on myself, I find that I'm actually like less productive. So how do you combat that?
0: It does, and to say that it you don't, know, I would be lying, and uh, most people will be lying. I mean, it does because you know, you have episodes to field, you have criteria to meet, you've got obligations for manufacturers and sponsors. And, you know, I tell people a lot, 90% of this is not hunting. 10% is hunting, 90% is business. Mm-hmm. Uh, some type of business acumen or aspect of it that goes along with it. So, you know, you've got social media obligations, you've got digital obligations, TV obligations, you know, contractual obligations. So there's a lot of pressure and, a lot of times we start feeling the heat. You know, if you go a month, a month and a half without shooting an animal or harvesting one or even seeing one, uh, you start to, you know, begin to doubt yourself. You start to put pressure on your shoulders. And you start to, uh, you know, you start to overthink and underperform as I like to say. So you start skipping steps, doing things that you shouldn't be doing. And, you know, it, it can cost you, it can. So we, we all just have to take a reset, stop, and remember why we started doing this to begin with. And, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's it's a, it's a pastime. It's a hobby. It's why we get together with our buddies and friends, you know, to do this. That's why we've always done it. Yeah. But yes, it does, you know, sometimes take a toll on you for sure.
1: Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's tough. I, I honestly don't think that it is uh, the more I've been involved in the outdoor industry and the more people like yourself and, and other professional hunters that I've gotten to know the more I'm like, man, I don't know if that's the type of job for me. You know, it's like, that really is a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And, um, I think that there's aspects of it that make it just an absolutely incredible job. Um, but it's not something that I think it's for everybody.
0: That's true. A, A lot of people really want to do it. And, you know, it's great if you get to try it, but a lot of people, you know, teeter out, they just, you know, they, they don't make it or, you know, there's too much pressure, too much traveling. I mean, I know some of these guys that are personal friends of mine that, you know, they're a one man show, or one woman should go, you know, they're on the road 250 300 days a year. Ugh. So, you know, family life's almost non-existent and, you know, one person trying to fill so many episodes and do this for a living, there, there's a lot of pressure that comes with it. The good thing for us, you know, there's four of us and then we have two pro staff guys that help out. And, you know, if one guy's slack and there's somebody to take space and fill the gap mm-hmm. and, and that makes a huge difference when you know, that more than likely somebody, you know, 25% chance somebody's going to pick up and fill in where somebody had a bad year because it happens every year for us. You know, one guy's going to have a really good year. Two people will probably have a mediocre to okay year, and one guy's going to tank.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I mean, it just it, – it, it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, two years ago I tanked. It was my year. Last year Jason tanked. Um, you know, this year – I just hope that monkey's not on my back. I, I, hope, I hope none of us get it, but I certainly don't want it. But, yeah. you know, for, for whatever reason, it seems like every year, one of us ends up with a really, really bad season. Yeah. So.
1: That's tough. That's tough. I mean, yeah, it's more, it's more like, you know, it's more like actually like hunter gather where it's like, man, I there's, I really do have to succeed here, you know, whereas nowadays hunting is often kind of a luxury um, But, I mean, along, along the way, so, like, you must have a lot of skills that a lot of people would think they would need to go to school for. But it sounds like you didn't really go to school for videography or any of those other things. You just kind of learned it on the fly, like trial by fire.
0: That's correct. Back when we started, you know, videography was so different. Like I said, you know, there were no iPhones. There were no... <laughs> or an iPhone maybe just starting, but Mm -hmm. there was none of that, no social media, none of that type of stuff. I mean, it was, we literally had the cameras that you set on your shoulder that was a camera pack, you know, Then you had a viewfinder that you had to put your eye up into. There were no LCD screens, you know, none of this looking off the camera, filming yourself. There was no self-filming at all. I mean, you had a camera up on your shoulder, looking through the viewfinder, trying to find the animal. And back then we used mini DV tapes. You know, there were no SD cards because I, can, I can't I can tell you the number of people in the outdoor industry had a film over, over hunts before. And I've done it myself. You literally, if you didn't take that tape out of the, out of the cassette and go ahead and download the footage or mark it where it was, because back then you had sheets and you would have to go through and time code every sheet like at 1222 is where a deer came in. Mm-hmm. And then the editors would have to go through and pull that footage based on your time code. Well, if you were to rewind to rewatch that footage and not fast forward it back, you just filmed over a hunt. And oh. we've all done it. Every one of us have lost hunts and done that. It's, and, you know, when SD cards came out and they're like, you can't film over something, we're like, this is the greatest place to slice bread. You, you can't rewind and not, you know, film you know, unless you lose the card or delete it, it's there. It's on that card. But yeah, there was years where this, you know, if you lost the videotape or you recorded over it, it it was not nothing unusual. And, you know, so yeah, we basically self-taught and, you know, now as things have progressed, video cameras and things, a lot of guys run stuff in manual settings and we still run most of our stuff in auto. Um, Our post-production guys probably, (laughs) they, they probably wish we run things in manual more, but you know if what we do we're just average everyday working guys and we're not the greatest of videographers uh, we have a great post edit company they do a good job but we run most of our stuff in auto we let the, we figure the camera is more way smarter than we are so we run everything in auto we let them work on it in post and you know yeah so none of us have a videography background
1: yeah my time in marketing here has been similar to that obviously not to that degree cuz i started when we had you know final cut pro sd cards all that kind of stuff but um you know yeah. for a lot of people that if you're that are that are looking to get involved in some kind of outdoor industry type thing you know just dip your toe in the water start filming yourself you know start figuring out what makes sense you know and you can learn so much stuff on youtube nowadays which you know i don't think yeah. you know you guys didn't have that resource back when you were figuring things out too you know so it's just uh, There's so many, the world is at your fingertips to try and learn how to do that kind of stuff nowadays.
0: It is the digital footprint that's, you know, Google, YouTube, any of that stuff. I mean, we would have given our arm back in the day to have that stuff. We, You know, I can remember being on hunts and one setting on your camera, your big, you know, shoulder camera, be off or something happened, you know, it'd be twisted or moved and you're on the phone with somebody, you know, at 11 o'clock at night trying to, you know, you didn't have FaceTime. You were trying to go through and then walk you through what setting was wrong or why you couldn't hear it or why you couldn't play it back or, you know, any of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. You know, now you get on there and there is something on YouTube or Google that you're going to find that somebody has you or run into on the videography side. But, yeah, you can film your own hunts. You can literally edit them on your phone. I mean, you know, we're, we're using our iPhone 13 now to video some of our outdoor TV stuff. I mean, that's how far along it is. Like, you know, I used to carry a Canon PowerShot S120 with me all the time. And you could put it in your back pocket. And I would film a lot of my stuff, checking trail cameras, you know, a lot of the bumper, so so to speak, stuff we do with me. And then I got to the point where I'm like, well, you know, my iPhone, the new and latest, greatest, it's filming in a better quality than that. So you Mm -hmm. can literally film half of what we do now on an iPhone
1: as hard as that is to believe. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of the video stuff in our videos where I just, you know, I have a, I have a galaxy S 21 ultra and you know it films in 4k and it's like, you know, it's like, well, it's, it's kind of a hassle to bring a a phone camera, especially if you're flying somewhere and doing all this kind of stuff. There's so much of stuff that you can do with that. And honestly, like the auto settings are really, really intuitive. You know, they do a really good job figuring out lighting and color, color color correction and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I literally carry a stand with me almost everywhere I go, that I can put my iPhone on and you know set it up and you know different angles and stuff, and I can record a lot of stuff there. I mean, obviously the cameras we use now are very small. Mm-hmm. You know, we all run the um, Sony PXW70s is what we run. You know, it's a mid-grade camera. It's not the upper-end stuff that a lot of the guys use, which you know we understand that. But they, they work great for what we do, 4K capability, and very small, lightweight, easy to pack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've had great success with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that sort of behind-the-scenes stuff is really interesting, um, you know, when you start to really dig into all these hunting shows that you enjoy watching on TV and understand the whole, you know, sort of how the sausage is made behind the scenes with all these cameras. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about just recording over footage. I mean, oh, man that's got to be like the worst feeling, especially when you already have this pressure to like put out a hunt, you know?
0: Yeah. I've been there. It's, it's (laughs) no good. I'm telling you, I I know people that that filmed over hunts that, you know, for 180, 90 inch deer type thing back in the day that, you know, it, it's gone. I mean, poof, it's gone. There Mm -hmm. it is. (laughs) No way to get it. So it, you know, yeah. Today's technology is so great. So easy. And like I said, people can go out and literally film a deer hunt on their, on their cell phone. I mean, You know, we didn't know that 15 years ago. Things may have been a little different now. (laughs) You know, could have had a forecast for that.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast here. Um, So, Red Rising, how can people get in touch with your guys' content? I know you guys have social media and all that kind of stuff, but TV shows, uh, where can people find you guys?
0: We do. You can find us on Sportsman's channel. Uh, We air four times weekly. Primetime airings are 8 and 11 p.m. Eastern. And then we also air on Waypoint TV, a uh, bunch of streaming networks. We have YouTube channel, uh, social media outlets. You know, you can look us up about anywhere. We've got a digital footprint. So, you know, Sportsman's the best way to get us. But there's old shows on uh, Waypoint, and YouTube has some stuff, our social media that works but basically outdoor sports and channels
1: place to find us got it and so people can just google like red rising tv and then just find your guys's sure. content
0: sure fantastic yep. we're,
1: we're awesome um well i really appreciate it i really think that uh your insight with traditions and muzzleloader hunting and and the outdoor industry was super awesome and i really enjoyed our conversation today so thank you so much for joining us Thanks, Darren. I appreciate you guys having us. time. Awesome. Um, Well, and for all of you listening or watching this, uh, if you're on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, hit that bell to receive notifications. We usually post videos. I think we're going to about once a week now. Um, And so be sure to check out that. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of that kind of stuff, make sure to leave a review because that's going to help promote the show and get our content out there into the hands of people that uh, love muzzleloading. And uh, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you on the next episode.